Welcome listeners to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. If this is your first listen, I recommend checking out the trailer or previous episodes for more context on the show. The easiest way to find all of it, including show notes and full transcripts, is by subscribing. You can do that anywhere you listen to podcasts or by going directly to praxisradio.com and clicking on Praxis. This season is a time travel project, returning to a radio show road trip I took in the summer of 2015. On the surface, a simpler time, though in many ways it was a prelude to the tumultuous year we're living through now. Before we start, today is the day before election day here in the U.S. It's actually four days before as I'm recording this introduction. I chose this conversation to be released this week because it focuses on so many things that I think are important to staying grounded during disorienting times like this election season. Imagination, strategic thinking, embracing uncertainty and change. At the end of the show, I'll have some more thoughts and resources to share, both from myself and from a few trusted friends, fellow organizers, past guests, and smart thinkers out there. Anyway, back in episode two, we were briefly in Vermont at Bread and Puppet Theater. What I didn't mention in that story was that I didn't have a plan for camping or traveling to my next stop, and that right after that kitchen interview you heard with Elka Schumann, it started pouring rain. I got lucky, and a friend of the puppeteers who had come to the circus too was planning to drive back to New York City that night, and she wanted someone to share the long drive. She ended up hosting me and introducing me to Rachel Schregas, with whom we'll spend the rest of this episode. I'm going to start with our first conversation. It's August 14th, 2015, in New York City, and I'm sticky from walking to her place from the train. It's been almost a year since the massive People's Climate March in New York City. So if you could just start by introducing yourself and a little bit about who you are as a, as a person and an artist and an activist. Uh, my name is Rachel Shragas. I live in New York City, born and raised in New York City. I am an illustrator and a sculptor by training, but uh, also am an organizer. Was trained up doing community organizing work around domestic worker justice here in New York, organizing employers of nannies and housekeepers. Um, I'm also totally an Occupy Generation activist. That's really when I became a movement person. Um, And now mostly I do work organizing cultural workers, a lot of it around climate change in the last year here in New York. Great. So yeah, let's let's dive a little bit more into that. So you got involved in Occupy Wall Street, Mm -hmm. I imagine. And uh, where did that lead you? Like, where were you before and where were you? Um, so I was a, you know, recently graduated college grad in New York City making artwork. I was making these flow charts and uh, Occupy happened in New York City and I saw uh, an opportunity to make the kind of work that I was making in a way that would be useful and did that at Occupy and saw immediately how much the image that I made was a tool for organizers to communicate the complexity and and solidarity and unity of Mm -hmm. Occupy. And it was connected to a whole world of other illustrators and puppeteers and performers and sculptors who were making things for Zuccotti Park, making things for occupations around the country, for Occupy sites around the country that were concretely useful. And I think I learned a lot really quickly about how much power art has to offer social movements in that moment and then uh you know so I did I ended up as an illustrator doing a lot of different kinds of projects I got a couple commissions from 350.org which was the first time that I was doing climate work myself and then to kind of speed right to where I am now I was reached out to by some folks at 350 about eight months before the people's climate march saying hey do you want to make art for this 
And the more I learned about it, the more I thought, you don't need an artist, one artist for this giant march. You need an army of artists. And mm -hmm. uh, I can see this is an opportunity to build that network of people who want to make art about climate change that I want to be part of. Mm -hmm. um, and so I stepped out of making completely and into a coordinating role to advocate for artists, to look for ways that artists could be involved and to organize artists to mm -hmm. participate um, and give them what they needed to participate uh, in the People's Climate March. Um, and so then, you know, kind of the vision all along was like, the march is just the beginning of that work. You don't build a network for one day. And so then that network has morphed into group called People's Climate Arts Collective with 11 of us kind of sharing leadership and a much larger circle around that. And we have worked with Fight for 15 here in New York City. We do a lot of work supporting a group in New York, standing in solidarity with the uh, disappeared students in IOT Napa, mm. done more climate justice work here in New York City. We've done a little bit of work in solidarity with Black Lives Matter at different points throughout the year and are experimenting with finding new ways of doing cross-movement arts building so what does it look like for you? I mean, there's there's obvious things like making an image like this Occupy flowchart mm -hmm. that help communicate for movements. But what what are the ways that you think artists can and should best interact with like the movement, for lack of a better yeah. term? Um, what do you think the I role mean, is? I love this question. That's a bit, I could talk with you about this question all day. Um, but I think the biggest thing I've learned is that when I'm talking with organizers, I talk a lot about art-based art tools, right? Like an image is a tool, an outreach poster is a tool, right? Like a song that makes people feel the right way at the right time is a tool. And there are a puppet show that explains the whole scenario is a tool. And there are weirder tools that we haven't <laughs> tried too. And I think the, the role of artists is to make that those tools, but even more so to to listen in, to, uh, un to participate in organizing and understand and hear what the needs are and, and be able to see, I think, people that have experience making activist artwork or people who are creative storytellers can hear a situation and figure out what tools mm -hmm. people need mm -hmm. and, and reflect that and offer that to organizers. So it's a kind of push and pull. I think that there's two things that need to go on, on at once for successful arts organizing. One is like total integration in the organizing, being at the table, doing really deep listening. And I can tell you more if you want about the ways in which we tried to do that for the People's Climate March. And also like autonomous arts led space, like a pro to, or like a production that artists are at the center of to make things. Hmm. And is there, so is there a space? Now we don't have a space right now. We're working arts. on it. Uh -huh. We had a space. We had a huge warehouse, three stories of arts production for a little more than a month before the People's Climate March, which is really out of control. That's a lot. <laughs> um, yeah. It was. I've, lo I've lost the number, but there were hundreds, and at the end, thousands of people working, um, like banners, and banners, and banners, and banners, and uh, silk screens, and, right, and like rehearsal mm -hmm. upstairs, and like, wow. um, you know, a, the area where the floats were getting made, it was really at a scale that I had never been able to work at before. But the, in addition to production, we thought of what we were doing as really being like a, a, a lab for, for the event, where we were calling meetings, between activists and cultural workers to talk about messaging and uh, craft imagery. And then we would take the messaging that people were 
coming up with in different sections and put we had a kind of post-it note chart of what the march was going to look like where it's like we know that the indigenous contingent is making a parachute that says stop co2 colonialism and we know that the migrant justice group is making a hummingbird puppet and corn and images of farmers and like putting them in order and we came up with this narrative or a proposal to sequence the march in kind of a story that told mm. a, a in contingents that told the story of the people's climate movement at that moment of who was showing up and why that was based in what we knew each contingent was making mm -hmm. and based in what we were hearing organizers from each section say they wanted to have understood about themselves with like seven big headings of the different wow. Uh, sections and those headings were crafted collaboratively between artists and organizers in each section and so it was just it was like moving between indi individual cultural production and co like mass coordinated mm -hmm. organizing that we couldn't have done without having a space to, yeah. to generate it all in together yeah. and how did it how did it turn out from your perspective I mean, it was uh, making that narrative was one of the most interesting experiences I think I've ever had um, of really getting to hear from people what their what their priorities were and what their struggles were with the t like the internal tensions of what it means to actually attack climate change systemically which means like both the most local and the most global the places where there was a, a huge amount of alignment and the places where there is still deep divides between the people doing mm -hmm. this work and I think I got to bear witness to that fact and try to try to find a way to tell that story and in that moment it was it was a moment of of really trying to tell a story of unity, like People's Sky March was about a big tent, but I learned a lot about uh, what's more complicated than that through that process, which I think motivates me. A, a lot of why I feel personally motivated as an artist to work on climate change is because it is so complicated. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and there's, I, I've come to think of it as like there's two, uh, there's like two areas, two big like wells of challenge in climate that are of course o o overlapping. One is people's fear in talking about it, and this was kind of the first one that I personally, like, confronted of, like, the problem is so big and ambiguous that we're actually, it's not that people disagree that it's a problem, like, really, there's no debate, <laughs> even though we continue to talk that way, but the people are afraid to step into uh, feeling like they could change anything, and that's mm -hmm. something that artists can really, like, pe moving people through fear, moving people through complexity mm -hmm. into knowing what they already know in their gut, like that's what artists are made to do. Mm -hmm. And the second, uh, I think, equally huge overlapping struggle in the climate movement is the legacy of white supremacy in the climate movement, so, like the legacy of white supremacy in the world and the way that that has turned, that has led really directly to the co-optation of struggling with environmental justice issues to be a like a perceived privileged problem mm -hmm. um, or and had to be co-opted into kind of like a consumer identity mm -hmm. and it's people with white privilege people with privilege who have who have uh, caused that shift so the baggage of that means that a lot of the messaging that would be most obvious to talk about climate change is loaded in ways that we like we need to heal from and move through you can't say like save the world <laughs> mm -hmm. right you can't say it's our earth you can't say it belongs to everyone you can't say everyone's going to be impacted by it even though everyone agrees that everyone is going to be impacted by it but because the impact will be so stratified along race and class lines we that saying this is everybody's issue is deeply disrespectful and like saying 
we were talking back and forth, and we were saying, well, climate is the issue that impacts everything, and uh, it's if by saying climate is an issue for all of us, what we're saying is like the murder of the black and brown men doesn't impact all of us, and so sure. the ways that we like cut through all of that baggage, I think, is a huge challenge that we need artists to work on. Mm-hmm. And I think the more we can get away from that legacy, the more we can get to effective solutions that are at the scale that we need to address it. And, you know, the flowchart, the Occupy Declaration actually says a lot of it in that, like, we can't solve the climate problem without solving the capitalism problem. We can't solve it without solving the white supremacy problem. We can't. Yeah, I would say not just get away from, but that we can't solve climate change without confronting the Mm -hmm. legacy of colonialism Mm -hmm. um, that caused it. I'm working right now, my project for the summer is working on arts and artist engagement in flood the system. I don't know if you've heard about this. A little bit, but yeah, but explain it for listeners. Um, so flood the system is kind of a, a extension of flood, flood Wall Street, the action that happened the day after the People's Climate March, and it's an attempt to say like, what would it look like to protest climate change at the root causes? What would it look like to protest climate change as the symptom of colonialism it is alongside a lot of other symptoms and try to shed some of the baggage of seeing climate as separate and build relationships in community, build relationships in the street, or that lead to or act being in the street together between people who are drawn to show up for racial justice, drawn to show up for economic justice, mm-hmm. drawn, to, drawn to show up for environmental justice, because nobody in any of those sectors doesn't understand that they're all the same fight. Mm-hmm. We all understand. How do we learn to work together? So this there's this isn't going to solve all of that problem, but it's a way to it's a project to try to build action councils locally across North America, primarily in the US and Canada at this point, though we have some contacts in Mexico working on the project too, to uh, to build local relationships that get at the root causes of the climate crisis. Um, so that's kind of wrap about flood and what and I, that's a that's a complex ask. Right, mm-hmm. like, so I'm working a lot with trying to figure out what arts tools we can make to make flood the system seem like the the intuitive. Like mm-hmm. when I say flood the system, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. right? Um, because you know what I mean by the system. I say the because there's only one. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> and you know what I mean by flood, right? You mean like mm-hmm. wash it away, <laughs> just mm-hmm. like get rid of it. And that's the reason why I'm really drawn to work on this project because like it's a water metaphor. Right? So like, let's mm-hmm. make imagery with water metaphors that gets at how people power is like water. They're like people can, the water can erode stone. Like water can make something that seems unmovable disappear over time with persistence. And we know that we can do the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's also like, that's a, it's a good metaphor in terms of, you know, if, if there's a huge flood, some of it's coming from the rain and some of it's coming from, you know, the groundwater, right? Yeah. And some of it's coming from So the first thing we did, I worked with a handful of artists, most of whom had come through the Beehive Collective, to make this slideshow that illustrates exactly that. It's like if a flood is an intersectional action in the streets, like what's a river? What's a rapid? What's an aquifer? What's the muddy waters? What's in the clouds? What's the, right? So we use water metaphors mm. a lot to try to build a new vocabulary that makes this organizing feel different and unique and feel like it's not like it like it's something we're building all together as opposed to like coming from the legacy of the climate movement and saying like y'all should do this 
but like, hey, what would it look like for us to try this new experiment together? It's an experiment. <laughs> yeah. And how's it, uh, how's that playing out so far? I mean, it's pretty, it's in an early stage still. Yeah, I mean, the actions are um, going to be in primarily October, November, mm-hmm. some in September. And Action Council has been forming slowly all summer. You know, it's slow work, especially in the summer. But there's a huge amount of enthusiasm about it. People want it. You know, this is the way that people want to do their organizing. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do those dynamics play out just in terms... I'm always very interested in this. Like, any, any organization that is at that scale... But that's also focused, as I think it has to be, on local communities having autonomy to do what works in their community. Mm-hmm. Um, how's that dynamic been from you? You know, going from being based in the city, being based in one place, to doing this kind of broad national, international work. Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. I think it's been re- a really humbling experience for me. You know, for People's Climate March, we were organizing nationally for and internationally um, but for the most part it was like if it's going to be in New York New Yorkers are in leadership and so um, it was clear who like who the frontline leadership was it was people doing climate justice organizing in New York and as an arts organizer like who are the voices that I should lift up it was finding artists that are working in those communities or asking artists I knew working in those communities if they would be able to come through and um, advocating for resources for them to do that. So at this moment, it's connecting to people in different places and supporting them, and I feel like I am learning so much about how much the tools and the stories need to be different in different places, Mm -hmm. and it's a little daunting. Um, But it also is really, like people, you know, we made this slideshow, and different people, when I take it different places or when I have Skype calls with people at different places, they, what they get excited about is different. (laughs) Um, and that is like pretty thrilling to like encode to when you like encode something really big or the 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 team that I worked on that image with someone who was raised in Maine someone who was raised in Appalachia someone raised in Vermont someone raised in Utah and me from New York City right and we used to joke actually it would be like as we were learning to brainstorm together we spent like a week and a half building it like okay do we want like a like to the point quick meeting or do we want to like getting everybody's opinion figuring out the full picture meeting do we want to have this meeting in New York City where like Rachel will facilitate and it'll be no bullshit or do we want to have this meeting in Appalachia where Aaron will facilitate and it'll be like uh, like the way that we do in Appalachia mm-hmm. so different people's styles having strengths is something I've learned a lot in this work and specifically around the climate crisis like I was asked to come to California to train a bunch of people on how to use it and there like in New York the word flood is really tricky, right? Because, like, flood is a, like, people have survived a flood because of Hurricane Sandy here. And so using the word flood to talk about our own power is, like, hard because it, it shows us how, like, we're, what we're going to have to do is, like, not nice. Like, mm. a lot of anger in it. Mm. Um, whereas, in, and, like, and that's a truth, right? Like, we're not, like, sweeping gently away. Yeah, <laughs> right? sure. Um, sure. In California. Just a gentle shower of, yeah, like, yeah. changing everything right. about the oppressive um, systems that we've been built. Right. Um, <laughs> We, in California, where there's a drought, where you say flood, and they're like, we could use a holy flood around here, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it, it, uh, it feels really different. Wow. Hmm. Which is, huh, yeah, and that's a really good, you picked a great metaphor. 
It's good. I mean, it, it, I did, we did not I mean, pick it. I y'all, did not pick it. Y'all picked a good uh-huh. metaphor. Well, because... we had this moment early yeah. in the organizing where I was, um, you know, I started getting involved in FLED because I saw a group present about the system, and it was like, I thought the present, the proposal was really compelling, but the way they were telling me about the proposal didn't allow me to see myself in it. Hmm. And so um, and another artist, Emily Simons, who was also there too, and she was like, Rachel, you and I could do really interesting things with this, and so we got to build a team to do that. And I was saying, we need to tell a story of why I flood the system. Like, we need to use pictures and metaphors and, like, get people. And I was like, I don't know what it is. Like, we, just, we need to do some storytelling, clearly. And Emily was like, it's right in front of us. It's a water metaphor, right? Like, the group that started this project is Rising Tide North America. Mm-hmm. Um, and, flood, like, oh, it's all about water. Like, uh, you know, it's right in front of us. We just have to expand it. Yeah. Wow, that's really great. So so all these actions kind of spread out through the continent, as you said, uh, in the fall. What's the... It's such a tricky proposition because it's just like Occupy. Like, mm-hmm. what is our one demand? You know, it's that same uh, kind of level of complexity. Yeah. But um, where do you see or hope to see the direction beyond that? Um beyond those actions beyond those actions yeah well well, I think this is a project to really figure out what it could look like to surface a lot of grassroots leadership and have it speak to each other right like we have these other every other week calls called the river council (laughs) of water flow lots of water Mm -hmm. flowing in the same direction even if it's not going the same place uh where leadership from local action councils all talks to each other along with people who are doing like gun skill based support like me and we're seeing we see that like in the Pacific Northwest, there's a lot of interest in the relationship between prison abolition work and climate change. And I bet that's going to, with what's happening with the fires in California right now, and half half of the labor there is prison labor that's fighting the fires. Um, I feel like that's going to grow there too. Um, and in, uh, there's a lot of places in which we're talking about indigenous solidarity and climate change. And about in, in New York, it's like, how do we connect with the Black Lives Matter work that's really alive here? It's a lot of the same organizers doing two different things. How do we make it one? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, letting those connections become rhetorically obvious in, like, a local context and then seeing how if it can be expanded. We know that it's, like, flood the system isn't going to, like, do all of this. And it's about really about building relationships. It's about imagining what it would be like to do the work. Like building an action council, trying out an action, mm-hmm. seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, what we've been saying in this slideshow I keep talking about is that we know that there's going to be a flood. We don't know how big it's going to be. And we know if we watch water that after a flood there's a low tide. <laughs> and after a low tide there's a high tide. So what we say to people is like, what we're doing is building more power, like tapping more water into the, our ecosystem so that the next high tide is stronger. And we can't know what that's going to be until we do it together. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's going to be another action proposal. Maybe we're going to have a national gathering. Maybe we're going to have all these regional gatherings. And we'll figure it out after December. Yeah. yeah. And um, just in our last couple minutes that we have, like, is there anything else that you want to, to mention, to point out to people, to plug, to mm-hmm. questions you have for other organizers or artists? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing that I dream about, that I want to state for like whoever is listening and is interested in the question of, the role of arts and activism is how artists can be leaders in showing us that there's one movement that doesn't exist yet, right? Like, there's all these movements for different pieces of justice. Ooh, sorry. It's okay. 
but we know that they're like this is all part of one vision for a just society and the movement that's pushing for that does not exist yet let's not kid ourselves <laughs> even though there's a lot of fierce pieces right now like right for 15 mm -hmm. and black lives matter and the growing climate justice movement right and like like there's a lot more people in the streets even than there were three years ago mm -hmm. um uh, and what is the role of artists to help us see where we all move together? People's Climate Arts in New York City is doing a lot of work to figure out how we get people in the same place at the same time building art together <laughs> and and use that to experiment with what it's like to build community together. And I, I think that uh, as artists, we need to see ourselves as, as leaders in this area and get really smart about and be really embedded in all the different kinds of work that's already going on so we can help make what doesn't exist yet because that's what we know how to do. Right on. And, uh... As you'll hear Rachel share in a minute from our conversation this summer when we reconnected, Flood the System didn't take off in a huge way, but I thought that we could all use a good metaphor to chew on in this moment. Here's what she's up to now and our reflections on the five long years since we last spoke. I wasn't able to listen to the whole interview, but I feel like the questions are familiar and I'll be able to speak to the things. Cool. All right. I guess if you just want to dive in, do you want to just introduce yourself and talk about, I don't know, everything that you've been doing since the summer of 2015? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Rachel Stragas. I am an artist and a cultural organizer, born and raised in New York City. And yeah, my, the path of my life's work is about supporting, organizing with the uh, tools of visuals. I've been increasingly using the phrase visual strategy to talk about what I'm doing using visuality in an integrated strategic way in organizing. And that the fact that that is like the path that my work has taken me down and it is now, I think I talked to you right around when I was making the transition to that being my paid work. And that is totally wild and awesome and dreamy because it's at the intersection of things that so many people care about and grapple with, how to spend their lives doing. And yeah, I was like kind of laughed when we were, you were kind of reminding me when we spoke last about what was going on in my life because I was building up an artist collective called People's Collective Arts that then stopped being my primary political home and is now officially not existing anymore or is in that process even though the people that I did it with are super beloved it reminded me of in 2015 I felt a sense of clarity and then in the last five years had a like wow what do I do now you know like how do I continue to do this work I thought that that was the vehicle for it and have like been on a whole journey of different vehicles that I can tell you about uh and then now I'm in a moment of like building with a new crew and kind of like, like I've been thinking actually about that moment a lot of how to, I call it the like containers of belonging problem. Like how do mm -hmm. I belong to something bigger than myself? How do I do work in an accountable collaborative way when so many of the social pressures of the world of people who are trained with the skills or have cultivated the skills of artists is to be your own brand and to be about yourself. And that's not actually how I think powerful work happens. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So much there. Uh, since we last spoke, I 
you know, started working just like offering my, because I know a lot of community organizers, I found myself to be a person who's like painting banners for marches. I feel like that's the like baseline unit of what people who do visual things and work in movements do is like make the signs and the banners. And then I worked on a couple projects that got like bigger and bigger alongside another artist who I'm sure you'll hear me talk more about his name is Josh Yoder. We found ourselves really involved in the fight against Amazon in New York City, making visuals for that. And then we found ourselves really involved in making visuals for Sunrise Movement, Use Climate Organizing. I don't know if you're familiar with mm-hmm. them. And then that really, blew, as Sunrise became just a giant national project, uh, Sunrise became my whole political world, and I started working full time there, and I did that for a couple years, and I just left two months ago. <laughs> so that's been the last couple of years of my life is like going deep on a couple of big projects. Those are pretty rad projects to have chosen, though. I mean, just in terms of being across the country, those are both things that were highly visible to me um, from yeah. very far away. So. Um, I feel really proud of the work that I got to be part of in both of those projects and would love to talk more about it in whatever ways helpful or relevant here. Yeah. I love, I remember, I don't know if you're part of this, but I remember the Amazon, all the boxes with yeah, the, that was with the flipped, boxes. with the frowning boxes. Yeah. That was a great, that was a great yeah, uh, <laughs> meme. Good job. Yeah. Those are still in my head. So I'm still There's frowning at Amazon. There's such, I mean, it's what's so interesting. We made 200 of those boxes, and that's all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the photos of them, it's just one or two people holding them, but it's such the flipping. We didn't, the idea to flip the frown wasn't Josh or my idea. It was first done by workers in Europe, but the, the ver- we made a version of it where the eyes look angry, and made, uh, that kind of took off. And the idea of putting it back on the box and making it look like an Amazon box, the frowny, was our work and actually producing the boxes in the style that they looked the way that I have come to say it is like the, the cultural goal of the fight against Amazon is to make the frown more real than the smile. Mm-hmm. Like Amazon has this, like people think it's so like magic and awesome, but actually it's like some bad shit. And when you see the frown, you think about the smile, but really what I want it to be is when you see the smile, you think of the frown. Mm -hmm. like that's the actual proper emotional response to Amazon Mm -hmm. and there's so I feel like my work in that fight is not over you know we we kicked Amazon out of Queens and so and that I I was working with that coalition before it became about the fight in Queens but because I was mostly working with New York groups that was the last round of work I did Um, and I feel like the fight there is only just beginning and hopefully we'll get to Hopefully you'll see a lot more frowny boxes. As well. yeah. <laughs> and we also made um, like a version of the Amazon tape. It's a little icon mm-hmm. that reframe all their like streaming, shipping, when I'll, you know, like Prime as really sinister actions that I think we should do a lot more with in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess something that I was reflecting on listening to our other interview it was really helpful for me to listen to it because you talked a lot about the work that was happening with flood the system and talking about organizing in general and like movement building as a water metaphor 
and I kind of can't get that yeah. out of my head and I'm obsessed with that because oh I, yeah. I just like love Bruce Lee and like I just think a water metaphor yeah. is like endlessly useful and uh you know you said I wish I had the exact quote I'll find it and play it with the magic of editing but you said something to the effect of you know, a flood after a flood, there's a low tide. <laughs> and after a low tide, there's a high tide. And then yeah. there's a new high tide. And I wonder yeah. if you can reflect on that, given everything you said about the last five years and what we know, you know, the, the disequilibrium you kind of described at the beginning of this conversation. Yeah, I I could I think about that a lot too. You know, flood of season was not a wildly successful project, but and I think the like high tide low tide metaphor is one of the longest term kind of like things that brought into my life because I really think about that all the time. And something that's happened for me in the last five years working with Sunrise is I'd never worked on a project or worked with people who came out of the momentum school of pra- of organizing practice. That is really, that uses weather metaphors a lot, but, and they don't really say high tide, low tide, but they do talk about like moments in the whirlwind of, or like organizing happens in these really acute, condensed, intense periods. And then there's periods of like preparation. And I'm so, in a, I've had, I've had a couple high tides the last year, couple years, and uh, I'm in a low tide right now. And I think I've been thinking a lot about the cultural moment we're in of, just deep anxiety about what's about to happen and like a feeling of helplessness. Um, and in some ways, right. Like, like the sausage is getting made right now about how the world is, is changed. Like the, the world is changing economically and culturally in this incredibly grim, scary way. And also it might be about to get a lot worse. There might be pivots depending on how elections go. And I, um, I, I feel like, I'm th- it's made me think about the like anxiety of the low tide in my own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think something about that, like the moment when we first talked was really like, I think everyone had this feeling of like some shit's about yeah. to go down and it certainly has now, you know? So I'm curious too, not to linger on it, but what you said about flood the system, not being, I don't know what, word you used just now but maybe underwhelming what the expectation had been I wonder if you can just reflect on that like a little more as an artist and an organizer like I think people a lot of people who are brand new to organizing and activism have emerged in the last five years in reaction to Trump in reaction to just everything bad escalating at once and maybe are burnt out and discouraged by the fact that we haven't we haven't like won yet you know so I'm curious about like more of your reflection on that. You know, I feel scared about the ways in which I don't think that we're prepared to win yet, but I don't feel burnt out and discouraged at all. And I think that, you know, I'm 34. So I feel like I'm in a transition to being able to know that I'm a lifer of an organizer and a Mm -hmm. cultural worker because I'm like more in the middle of my life. It doesn't feel new. And so thinking about myself, like entering through the long haul, one way I find myself thinking a lot is that I don't have control over whether we win or lose. And it, we're heading into, like, in some ways, the world has gotten a lot worse in the last five years and six months. And in some ways, that the status quo was not 
going to yield transformational change. So if I can be callous, I can be like, that's great. Shit's getting uncovered. And the thing that can bring me hope is more people participating in transformational change. And that's actually like the only place I can place my exhilaration is like, wow, yeah, so many more people are getting involved. So there's so many more. I think one thing I really believe is true is that no power is built alone. And so more people belonging to more groups of people in motion is kind of the baseline of hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, as so talking about like the, the Amazon boxes as a microcosm of this, but the other work you've done with Sunrise, I think Sunrise has been amazing. It's been one of the most inspirational like movements and groups for me to watch and be part of over the last few years. Um, you know, we're mm-hmm. both going to age out and get kicked out soon and that's okay. Um, but... Well, I laughed because I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to leave staff before I turn 35 and hand yeah. my work to young folks that I trained up through it, which yeah. is really a beautiful process. Yeah. That's the deal, right? It's like they, that's how it should be. And yeah, but both of those, I mean, all of that work doing this visual work, I consider a lot of it to be storytelling work. I don't know if you do, but, um, I use that word a lot too. Okay. Yeah. What's, it's such a hard time. And I feel like this topic is a little bit overwrought and the way that people are frantic about it, I find annoying in a way I can't articulate, but, um, (laughs) this idea that we're like somehow quote unquote polarized, I'm not really into that, but at the same time, it's clear that we are not living in a shared reality with our family members, our neighbors in some senses. And there is like this big gulf, it feels. So what do you think just like as a storyteller and someone who lives in that world, what's your, as a strategist too, you know, what, what do you think about this moment in terms of, in those terms? Um, I think so. I'm in a moment of knowing what I don't know. Right. Like I, I think that Sunrise, I'm coming out of a phase where I was really all in with Sunrise. And I learned so much from that experience because, like, my strategy briefing and my political orientation to the world was, like, through Sunrise. And that was a new experience for me of, like, it doesn't really matter, like, who I think should be president. What matters in my life is who Sunrise thinks should be president, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, like, what Sunrise is doing. And I think the storytelling that happened there was very, is that happens there. It's very clear because there's clarity about who the audience is and how that audience communicates or what the voice is and what the platforms are. And so I'm in a, I guess the thing that I can say is that I think before you know the solution, you have to be clear about what the problems are and that I'm in a state the problem moment around uh, like collective storytelling. Okay, where where are we are? What is the problem? And honestly, one of the things that makes me most afraid in the world is the like echo chamber of media and the way that there are so many competing capitalist platforms for where people go to understand the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and each of them is programmed with like the major social media platforms being where a lot of people get information programmed to show you what you want to hear. And so like the creation of a collective narrative is really stacked against us. It's like the the odds are stacked against us from us to actually reconcile with 
each other's ideas of truth, right? And we can talk about the kind of right-wing post-truth idea that I think really owns the world and that the left isn't ready to play hardball with. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a storyteller, it's time for me to understand what my practices have to be in that ecosystem, in that reality. And I have some, I could talk about like traces of ideas, but I don't have it totally figured out. I feel a lot less clear that like beautifully made objects in the street are the whole equation than I did when I talked to you five years ago. It feels way more important to me that I understand the internet than five years ago and media strategy than five years ago. Mm -hmm. And the more I've definitely echo that, the more I learn about exactly what you just described with the social media landscape, the more I just long for like, can we just have beautiful objects in the street? Like, and then with COVID, you know, of course that's further complicated, but yeah. I mean, have you, have you imagined like a, a different way that we could all be using the internet outside of these companies? Is that in your purview? No, it's not. And like, neither do I think it's in my control. Yeah. So I don't, I don't actually think that like alternative institutions is, I think the work of building alternative institutions is incredibly, incredibly important and in some ways just really not my lane and more about like strategic engagement of the horrible social institutions we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it sounds like you've remained in that everything, if you're critiquing Amazon as a, you know, bad capitalist actor and the social media companies it kind of all comes back working with sunrise you know i am making the assumption that you're still you've been very focused on climate as a i haven't i have in some ways like i i since i've done a lot of climate work it continues to be something that i do but i think that i find my mind thinking just more about the framework of crisis right now and i think that working on the green new deal cracked open my imagination of how I think about climate change because the Green New Deal is so clearly a solution to COVID mm. and COVID is, you know, a, a fact we are really not talking about is that shifting disease vectors is a, a symptom of global warming and that, you know, in my like most fearful can't sleep kind of night I'm like, wow, there's going to be no one's calling this pandemic a climate problem, but when there's another one in three years, we might, same way as hurricanes, you know, same way as fires. But I, I like, it doesn't, we're, we're, we've entered into a world where the symptoms of ecological collapse are so multifaceted and intertwined with the economy that it's not, that we can just talk about the crisis of the world that we're in. And it doesn't matter the facts of climate change matter less mm -hmm. I think, or in my own thinking yeah so I don't totally think of myself as a climate organizer I think of myself as a, a like crisis organizer hmm. and it's that makes sense because I think you know it's the lobsters in the pot metaphor that gets used all the time like I feel like at some point in the last few years We've shifted in the U.S. We've been slower here, as usual, um, to talking about the climate crisis in the present tense rather than this kind of, I think for a long time, the climate movement, and you talked about this, was very 
the the public facing climate movement was very uh, rooted in like the legacy of white supremacy, consumer identity, and it was sort of a through the early 2000s when I got involved in it in retrospect kind of a navel gazy space of like someday these bad things are going to happen and you have to do something about it now and now you know as you said it's more of a crisis response yeah yeah what is that what does that look like to you I mean when you think of yourself as a as a crisis organizer now what is that I'm like thinking aloud to you because I'm in such a moment of reckoning and learning uh, so I don't have I don't have a pre-canned answer. <laughs> um, I think it's about responsiveness. That I I think vis- visual strategy is a component of strategy, and that I do my best work when I'm listening to a need from people who are looking at a more multifaceted picture, and that I my work is about tactics in a lot of ways. It's about what it looks like, how we, what the ener- moving energy in the street, how people arrange themselves in space, how objects make people feel, how we communicate the story. And that I, I, I get to work on lots of different kinds of projects and listen and be accountable to people. And I have to be prepared for the focus of my work shifting a lot. I think a lot of people see, I feel, and I think a lot of people feel a lot of anxiety about their role in as organizers or like their role in making change and that's something we need to get used to is a really high level of uncertainty I'm like well I'll just pitch in here if I can you know yeah yeah I think that whole model of which is really a it's a very white to speak broadly it's like a very white capitalist model to be like we have a 10-year <laughs> plan and everyone has yeah. a highly defined role and this is going to happen at this time like that's gone it feels, and that's probably good, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in terms of creating a functional, like, human system, but. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I appreciate that uh, transparency that you're in the middle of it. I think we don't hear that enough from, from people who are, who are organizers yeah. and, and people in general. So thanks. <laughs> That said, I want to respect your time, and I know you don't have a lot of time, but um, do you have any projects or people you want to shout out who you think are are doing this work really well, who are like, articulating the thing we need to move into? Um, gosh. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, I this month I've been just left Minneapolis where I was living, supporting my partner, who was an organizer in Minneapolis for a long time. And after George Floyd's murder and the uprisings, they went home to go support. And so I get to kind of bear a secondary witness to the reckoning happening on the ground there as kind of like a primary site of refusal of the status quo that's happened mm-hmm. in our country. And the place that is moving closest to defunding the police. And even though it's a you know, long, slow process there, so I want to talk about the city of Minneapolis and the ways I've gotten to like witness the reckoning with what it means to change society and do better and, and actually embody community safety. That is happening in many places in the country, but it's happening there in a particular way. We already shouted out my folks at Sunrise. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's a very beloved world to me. And... I also, as I said to you, feel like part of being slow is like 
reading and listening to more media and uh I'm like call me back in a month <laughs> yeah just spam me with anything honestly I'll I'll find a way to work it in yeah yeah well um that's great thank you so much for sharing all of that and uh about your own work and your journey and um it's been useful for for me to listen to the first one and to talk today so I appreciate um, that. Um, if people want to find your work, do you have any personal plugs you want to plug? Um, you can find out more about me, <laughs> Rachel, at rachelstragos.com. And I'm, I'm like uh, in the process of hatching a new formation with support formation with my collaborator, Josh. Which I should, I'll shout out Josh Yoder, too. He's the most brilliant visual strategist an illustrator that I have ever worked with. You can find his work at jessjoder.com and we will, we'll have something soon and I'll, I'll share it with you when it comes to be, but it's not, it's not where you can look at the work we do and, but it, cool. it's not real yet. It's, in, it's incubating. <laughs> it's coming. Yeah. I have a lot of things doing that now. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and for all the work you do. Thanks. And you too. Thanks for listening. It's a real honor. Thank you so much to Rachel again for talking with me both of these times and for sharing your work. And thanks to you all for listening. Before I go, I want to share some messages for what I'm assuming now, like I said, a few days ago for you, I guess, is a wild week. Our political landscape here in the U.S. has been an escalating mess, and everyone I know is dealing with some level of anxiety around what will happen next. Something that always calms me down in moments like these is to remember the things that I and we as a species or as a movement have already survived and what lessons we have learned from those times. It also helps to imagine vividly the future that I actually want. I asked a few of my favorite organizers, artists, activists, and friends to leave me short voicemail to share with all of you about their hopes for after this election. So here's what they had to say in no particular order. Sisters, brothers, the nation is not broken. It is white supremacy that is coming apart, flaking like a scab off a wound. Even though they have infiltrated police departments and will try to overthrow the government, they can't stop the future. Their violent, desperate resistance is driven by the awareness more and more hearts and minds are joining us. The progressive movement is gaining momentum all over the world. We can only get stronger from here. You will know the truth when you hear it. It arouses a love reflex, and our love is stronger than their hate, anger, denial. So keep the faith. Stay engaged. Hello, this is Navmara. I've been a resident of Spokane County for over eight years now, and I'm so excited for this election since I know it's propelled so many to vote who haven't voted before or haven't voted in years. We all want our voices to be heard, and we know representation matters. So as a longtime activist for social justice who spent most of my career working with and for impacted populations and communities of color, I support candidates who listen to and understand the needs of those populations. I also understand that everyone has their own priorities and reasons why they choose to vote the way they do. I respect their choices, and that is what makes America great. We all get to have our say.
the main thing to do after this election is over and once we are on the other side of COVID-19 is to hug everybody in sight. Make sure, let everybody that you know, meet them, see how they're doing. And if you can't do that right now for a while, just reach out and see how people are doing because we can't live, we're social animals, we can't live in isolation so much. And it's really important to check up on those that you love. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Hey, everyone. This is Ingrid Cook. I'm Indigenous Mayan. I am, I guess, an advocate and I'm also a scholar currently working on my master's. But I wanted to send this message to everyone as we are anxiously anticipating the results of the 2020 election. I know that this is a really big decision for a lot of our communities and a lot of people are putting on hold uh, life decisions to see what this will look like for many of us. But as we have all been hearing, the elections will not be decided until days after, probably. So I hope that we can all unite as a community, that we all check in on each other, that we call our friends, that we call our families, that we stand strong together. These four years have been difficult for many of us, but we have um, really survived them and we have thrived. So my hope is that post-election, we are with the people that we love the most and that we are checking in with the people that we care about and our communities. We are strong. Let's stay together. Permanezcamos juntos. Estamos en esto juntos. Janila Matios Chihuahua. Yes, this is David Brookbank. Yes, post-election, well, I won't be celebrating post-election regardless of who wins. The system will not be giving people any rest uh, from the effects and consequences of capitalism and imperialism. It will just march on forward regardless of which candidate is elected. But throughout all that time, abuses, exploitation, and specifically that my my biggest concern is our brothers and sisters in Latin America and around the world, but specifically Latin America, very brave uh, peoples who our country has sat upon and uh, disrupted and exploited and uh, intervened in for the entire history of our country, very extreme interventions at the current time and in recent decades, resulting in deaths of large numbers of people. Personally, that's where my my energy goes to. So whether people do choose to celebrate um, or take a deep breath and relax for a moment, hopefully it will be just for a moment because there's a lot of work to do. And typically what I've seen is that for lack of clarity and analysis, but also because of privilege, large numbers of people who are Democrats begin that long Rip Van Winkle sleep that occurs after Democrats come to power. They only wake up for midterms and for the next presidential election in hopes of reelecting the Democrat. But that's how we end up at the end of an eight-term, eight-year administration with wars and deportations and continuing in interventions around the world. So my, my hope is that all this energy that was generated when Donald Trump became elected, a lot of people who'd been asleep for eight years and then woke up and been working hard and doing good work, that those same people hope to continue to work as hard and perhaps doubly hard um, once the Democrats in office, because there'll be a lot of attempts to convince people that, well, things are in good hands. Hi, my name is Lou. Um, 
Some people might identify me as an activist, but I like to think of myself as someone who genuinely cares about humanity and specifically cares about the humanity in my community, the community that I live in. Post-election, the most important thing we can remember is that democracy is important, that our voices are important, and representation of our identities is even more important right now. And unfortunately, we live in a time where we don't have the representation that we need in a way that moves humanity forward. And after this election, what we need to do is come together. And we might disagree on policy, and we might disagree on how we get to an objective, which I believe we all share, which is a healthy, happy community with people that can work together to care for ourselves and each other. And so as this as this time passes, my hope is that we remember that democracy matters and those who threaten our democracy need to be removed and that we don't always have the representation that we need or we want, but we always have to keep in mind to get that. We have to be thoughtful of what democracy means and how we continue to engage in it and improve it and love each other while we do it. So that's my message. Hey, this is Joan Medina with Bridget's Cloak Homeless Outreach. No matter what happens with the election, I hope that we will remember to watch out for each other and to be kind. People are suffering and afraid, whether it's politics, pandemic, or simply struggling to exist. There's still work to be done to protect those who are unfairly targeted and abused by our overzealous and indifferent police and politicians. There's still a system of oppression and white supremacy to dismantle. We need you and your dreams and hopes to bring about much-needed change and build a better world. We need the artists and the activists, the gardeners and the builders, the teachers and first responders, the leaders and the quiet dreamers, young and old from all cultures and ethnicities and economic backgrounds. We need all of us working at what we do best to create beloved community. We can build a world where everyone is fed and sheltered and feels respected and valued. Be safe. Be kind. And remember, you're not alone. We are in this together. I love you. Oh, hi. Uh, This is Tim Connor. I'm a writer and, and photographer in Spokane. I think I can answer this question two ways. I think there's a couple things that we really need to take into account with what we've been through. One is we need to fix uh, what Steve Bannon, uh, Trump's media advisor and campaign director for a while in 2016, called flooding the zone with shit. That was their idea of how to deal with the media. And the media has been overwhelmed with, as you know, tens of thousands of outright lies by the president and a full-blown misinformation campaign about everything from soup to nuts. You know, the other thing that I think we really need to work on is um, the pension for authoritarianism. That's really frightening in this country now, where we've got roughly a third, a half of the country believing that an authoritarian movement is somehow necessary to um, put us on the right path. I guess that's a pun. And that is so, uh, the idea of using the tools of democracy, including uh, the Supreme Court and voter, voter suppression, to install 
uh, you know, permanent corporate fascist state to me is the scariest thing that we've got to get past. Hopefully we can get past it with this election. Um, but my feeling is that it could take longer than that. Thanks. Hey, it's me. <laughs> no matter what the outcome is of this year's chaotic election, we must always continue to show up in love. That means that we don't go back to normal, even if we defeat the fascist presence in our national leadership, nor do we destroy ourselves in the fight if we don't. Our time here is precious, and planet Earth is always holding us, even as she faces an uncertain future in our care. Integrity means to honor the gravity of our struggle for a more equitable and sane world in all the ways that are sacred to us, in all the ways that work. To acknowledge the resilience innate in us, even when despairing at the headlines, and the ground we lose when the world has us stuck in the regressive maws of its growth. Through every single human being, hope lives on. If we can hold ourselves and hold each other and bravely move forward with ferocious consideration of our gifts and limitations, then we can face whatever fights come. And if we go down, then we do so nobly. I really do believe that through the violent nature of human history, the seeds that are always planted and that always bloom, even if not in the timing that we think or desperately hope for, is hope and that it carries through generations and it carries through lifetimes and it carries through moments in every single person, even if we can't always see it. So no matter what happens, with the election that's what we have to go on and that's what we have to hold space for each other and share with each other because pretty much that's all we got at this point in a lot of ways okay bye again thanks for listening and thanks to all my comrades who recorded messages on short notice this week I hope these interviews and thoughts were helpful for you. As always, you can find me most easily by going to praxisradio.com, that's P-R-A-X-I-S-R-A-D-I-O.com, and clicking on Praxis. I'll be back next week in California. See you then. Dream, child, dream. Envision a new world without suffering, without hunger, without intentional cruelty. Dream, child, dream. And while you grow gardens aplenty, not just of roots and stems or leaves and fruit, but sow fields of books and grow acres of stories sung in great halls, told around campfires, and shared snuggled under blankets. Dream, child, dream. Not just of heroes who climb mountains, or run races, or who leap tall buildings with a single bound, but of heroes who grow and prepare food so that the rest of us may be nourished, of heroes who help carry stones and buckets of mud to build homes so that the rest of us may be sheltered, of heroes who share skills and experience across generations so the rest of us may learn and expand on their ideas, of heroes who, with their hands and bodies and voice, create beauty, woven with colors and form, rhythm and tone, so that the rest of us may listen with wonder and smile with joy. 
of heroes who hold space, gently allowing our fragile hearts to grieve or vent or be silent, so that the rest of us may be safe to express our deepest feelings. Of heroes who protect their children like mother bears, who let the wind whisper in their children's ears all the wisdom of the ancestors so that we may continue as a people, living in harmony with all of our relations on this planet we call home. Of heroes who lay down their swords and dance with dragons, who bring our hearts to overflowing so that peace and tranquility are the laws of the land. Dream, child, dream of all these things and more for your village, for your people, for your world. And when you wake, return to your origins to find that all of your dreams have come true. For this is the power of creation. This is the magic of the dreaming tree. I love you. Be well. Be kind. And we'll get through this together. <laughs>